To the ancient Greeks and Romans, the ultimate ambition was to be worshipped as a god. Now, most men would deny that they had any such ambition. It was seen as hubristic. But for the most ambitious, for those at the very top, many harbored this ambition in their heart. And we know this in part because some, like Julius Caesar, were indeed worshipped as gods after their death. But here in the 21st century, we know that we're beyond such superstitions, right? Except, if you go to Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, there's a long park. And at either end, you have two things. At one end, you have the capital of the United States. And if you go into that capital and stand right at the center and look up, you'll see a fresco called the Apotheosis of Washington. George Washington was the first president of the United States. And this fresco, this painting, depicts George Washington's apotheosis. And what does apotheosis mean? Well, it means the culmination of something, the highest point of greatness of a thing. But the word also has another meaning. It comes from the Greek apotheion, meaning to make a god of. And it's very appropriate that it's called that because Washington is sitting there as a god, judging the United States. It perfectly resembles the kind of painting that you would find in a cathedral. The only difference between the apotheosis of George Washington and something that you might find in a cathedral is that Washington is in the place of God. And then if you go to the other side of the mall, this giant park, you will find something called the Lincoln Memorial. And the Lincoln Memorial is a giant monument that was designed after the Temple of Zeus in Olympia, Greece, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The only difference between it and the Temple of Zeus is that Abraham Lincoln has taken the place of Zeus. So once again, we have a man, President Lincoln, taking the place of God. We might think we're beyond such superstitions, but we're not. And every city, every nation has their gods, as it turns out, even a nation that believes itself secular like the United States. So let's ask ourselves a question. Who is the God of England? It's a good question because it's a country with a history chock full of military heroes. The sun never set on the British Empire, after all. This podcast is called How to Take Over the World, and they're the first nation to have a claim on having truly done that. Being the god of Great Britain is a hard position to come by, arguably an even more difficult task than what Washington and Lincoln were able to do in the U.S. You must be a hero among heroes. So who is it? Who takes that place of a god in the U.K., in England? Well, if you go to the heart of the country, to London, and go to the heart of the city, you find Trafalgar Square, and that's where you find your answer. At the top of a column in the middle of Trafalgar Square stands Admiral Horatio Nelson, holding a sword, standing watch over his nation. Historian Andrew Lambert calls Nelson a national secular deity, the god of war for troubled times, the last resort against overwhelming odds, guardian against tyranny. And so obviously, I mean, who wouldn't want to study this guy? Of course I want to do an episode of how to take over the world about him. But it's not just because he's so accomplished that he became this sort of god of England, but also because he's one of the greatest leaders of all time. That same historian, Andrew Lambert, said that to work with Nelson was to love him. Even the most hard-bitten veterans were unable to resist his courage, commitment, and charisma. A contemporary wrote that he was perhaps more generally loved by all ranks of people under him than any other. He has this sort of magnetism. People who served with him talk about him in these overtones that make you think that they're talking about like an angel or some divine presence. But all of that must have seemed like a fantasy to a boy who was born in one of the most remote corners of England. Horatio Nelson was born to a downwardly mobile country reverend in Burnham Thorpe on the eastern coast of England. Burnham Thorpe was small and remote, but there on the coast, he would have had the opportunity to meet sailors and hear their stories. 
He grew up revering the great British sailors, men like Francis Drake, James Cook, John Hawkins, and Robert Blake. He was thin and wiry, intelligent, charismatic, and good at making friends. Certainly, he would have made an impression as a bright and ambitious boy. But meeting him in Burnham Thorpe, no one would have guessed that this boy would surpass all of these adventurers and live one of the most heroic lives in British history and in all of history. So let's get into it. Let's see who he was and how he did it. Welcome to How to Take Over the World. I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny fella. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Horatio Nelson was born on September 29th, 1758. He grew up not poor, but not particularly well off either. His father, Reverend Edmund Nelson, was, I think, something of a loser. He thought life was out to get him, and he resented success, even sometimes his own son's success. His mother, Catherine Suckling, was very bright and came from a wealthy and well-connected family. Her first cousin, a couple generations removed, had been the first prime minister of Great Britain. And luckily for young Horatio, his mother's brother, so his uncle, Maurice Suckling, was a rising star in the British Navy. Horatio's mother, Catherine, died when he was only nine, which left her hapless husband with eight children. Edmund talked to his brother-in-law, Maurice, about finding positions for his boys in the Navy, as he doubted his ability to care for them. And so it was that only a few short years later, at age 12, Horatio found himself in the British Navy on a ship under the command of his uncle Maurice. And we will hear about the start of his naval career after this quick break. The Navy was a great place to be for an ambitious young man like Nelson. In contrast to much of the rest of British society, the Navy was quite meritocratic. Having good political connections and having a good name, being from aristocracy, that certainly helped you rise. But if you were talented and performed well, then you were going to get noticed and promoted. The other thing to understand about the Navy at the time is that this was high tech. Wooden ships and cannons, they seem rustic to us, right? So it's hard for us to conceive of this as like the cutting edge of technology. But these ships were the fighter jets and the spaceships of their time. They took a lot of engineering to design and construct. They were industrially produced in these great shipyards with a full industrial production behind them with cutting edge materials. They're constantly being updated with new weapons and new technologies as they came out. So when Nelson joined at 12 years old, that was on the younger end of when a young man might join the Navy, but it wasn't totally out of the ordinary. And luckily for Horatio, his uncle Maurice was married, but never was able to have any children. And so he took a truly paternal interest in his young nephew instead. And Uncle Maurice did a great job engineering these first nine years of Nelson's career. He had him stationed on small ships that were nevertheless doing interesting and exciting things. And the purpose of that, the function of being on a smaller ship, meant that he got to take more responsibility. So for example, one of his first assignments as a 12-year-old boy was to be put in charge of one of the boats on a ship. These are just like little boats that hang off the side that are used to transport people to and from shore or to and from other ships, other large naval ships. So this isn't like a big task, right? It's just a little rowboat essentially. But as a 12 year old, he has responsibilities, he has independence, and he's able to distinguish himself a little bit with competence and with swift execution of his duties. His first assignment 
is with his uncle to the Caribbean. His second assignment, Nelson requests to be on an exploration to the Arctic, where they make it all the way to the polar ice cap and see some polar bears. There's even a legend, maybe apocryphal, that Nelson was so brave that he took a gun and goes out and is trying to hunt polar bears so that he can bring a skin back to his father. His third assignment was to India. And so by the time he exits his teenage years, he's lived a pretty amazing life already. He, you know, he's from this little corner of England, but now he's already seen the Caribbean. He's seen the Arctic. He's seen places of the world that probably no one else uh, besides the people on the ship with him had ever seen before. And he's been to Asia as well. He's been to the markets there and seen this other side of the world. This whole time as a midshipman, he doesn't really have the potential to affect big outcomes, but he continues to demonstrate himself to be brave, competent, energetic, and proactive. He was also very good at making friends like he had been in his childhood, and he made a number of friends in his early years that would serve as important connections later in his career. In 1776, while serving in India, Nelson contracted malaria, which was not uncommon for English sailors. He was sent back to England to convalesce, and many thought he wouldn't survive the journey home. He did survive, but his malaria would periodically return and affect his health throughout the remainder of his life. He quickly recovers passes his lieutenant's exam in London and is then sent back out on another ship and this time he's sent to the Caribbean again. War has broken out with America. Uh, the war of American independence, the revolution is underway and so he's sent as a lieutenant and he's helping to patrol in the Caribbean looking for American ships. The U.S. didn't have much of a navy to fight back against the British, but they had pirates and they had smugglers who were continuing to try and trade with the Caribbean islands there to get much-needed resources. In the context of the war with America, uh, Nelson is given an independent command. He's given a pretty simple mission. Spain had joined the American War for Independence. Not something you hear a lot about, but they had joined on the American side. And so an army officer in Jamaica decides, well, this is a good opportunity to strike against Spanish holdings in the Americas. And so he wants to invade what is now Nicaragua to strike back at them. Importantly, if they could strike there and hold it, this would give Britain access to the Pacific Ocean. So Nelson's mission is very simple. He just has to carry 3,000 soldiers from Jamaica, where they were stationed, to Nicaragua, where they would attack the Spanish. Well, he gets them to Nicaragua and disembarks them, but uh, they have these transport boats to take them upriver towards Fort San Juan, the fort they were trying to, to take and attack, uh, because obviously these big ships that got them uh, there, they couldn't go up a river. Well, Nelson watches these troops try and board these ships and the people who are navigating them up the river, and you can see that they're doing a really poor job and this is not working, so he decides, okay, I'm going to go beyond my orders and I am going to help these people get up river and take control of the boats and I'm going to take part in this siege of Fort San Juan. And he becomes an integral part of the expedition, not just in the transportation, but in the actual carrying out of the siege. He's energetic, he's moving cannons, he's getting stuff set, and eventually they take Fort San Juan. But it's a Pyrrhic victory. The siege takes so long that the British forces are exhausted, they're nearly out of supplies, they're hungry, they're soaked, and yellow fever starts to spread throughout the camp, starting with Nelson himself. And so he is sent back to Jamaica. There he encounters his commanding officer, Admiral Parker. Technically, he had disobeyed orders by taking the men upriver and participating in the siege, but Parker sees this as initiative, as him being proactive rather than as disobedience, 
and so he commended Nelson for his brave efforts. Once again, people think that Nelson is on death's door, and so he's sent home to England to recover from his yellow fever. He doesn't die, of course, and he makes it back home to England. After he recovers, he's made a captain and is given his first permanent command of a ship. His duties are to convoy merchant and supply ships to and from North America. He's under the command of the distinguished and very capable Admiral Lord Hood. And after a few of these convoys, Hood eventually sends Nelson back to the Caribbean. Nelson was aggressive. That was one of his defining attributes. And that is one of the things that made him great. But it was also one of the things that could get him in trouble. And so at this time, uh, under his own initiative, he undertakes an assault on Turks Island, now a part of Turks and Caicos. It's a foolhardy attack against an entrenched and well-fortified opponent, and Nelson is easily repulsed, which is very embarrassing for him. One of his contemporaries described the attack as this ridiculous expedition against Turks Island, undertaken by a young man merely from the hope of seeing his name in the papers, carried out without intelligence and hastily abandoned for the same reason. Well, the American War for Independence ends shortly thereafter, and he's lucky to keep a post in the Caribbean. The British Navy at this time had the habit of downsizing considerably when they weren't at war in order to save costs. And so that meant a lot of captains lost their ships. Uh, but not Nelson. Despite his failure on Turks Island, Nelson had shown himself to be a rising star, a capable, enterprising, independent-minded captain. And so good for him. He's still got a ship. Uh, it's during peacetime, but it's much better to have a ship than not to have one. And it starts off well. Everyone expects him to just sort of hang out in the Caribbean. It's not a tough assignment. He just has to patrol a little, check up on stuff, keep piracy in check. It's supposed to be a chill appointment. But Nelson hates inactivity. He hates it. He can't stand to be sitting on his hands doing nothing. He has all these quotes about it in his letters from later in his life. He writes home to his wife. He says, I hate inactivity. And another time, in another time, he says, laying in port is a misery to me. In my mind, he's like a husky, right? These huskies who just love to pull sleds, right? And if you don't let them run, they're just whining. They just can't wait to be out and running. And that's Nelson. He can't wait to be sailing. He can't wait to be in the action. He can't wait to be attacking, just lazying around and chilling, hanging out. He can't stand it. And so he is naturally, by disposition, on the lookout for action, things that he can do. And one of the things he sees that he can do is start to enforce something called the Navigation Acts. These were laws that stipulated who could trade with whom. And as part of the Navigation Acts, there were penalties assessed to the Americans for the Revolutionary War. The Americans were no longer British. They had revolted. And so they were no longer allowed to trade with the British territory in the Caribbean, places like Jamaica and Barbados and all these islands. Well, this is hugely unpopular in the Caribbean because they got a lot of their food from the USA and they made a lot of money exporting sugar, molasses, and rum to the US. And in addition, they're looking at this saying, well, hang on a second. If you're going to punish the United States by telling them they can't trade with us, how come they can still trade with you? Because trade was still legal between the United States and England after the war. And so this doesn't seem very fair to them. So it's hugely unpopular in the Caribbean, these navigation acts. And so the policy of everyone who came before Nelson was, all right, this is so unpopular. We're just gonna turn a blind eye. And we're just going to let the Americans trade here in Jamaica and elsewhere. And we're going to pretend like it's not happening. And this is true at the time when Nelson shows up. So Admiral Hughes, who is his superior in, in this theater, was not enforcing these laws. And so his old boss, 
who he had really respected. His name was Hood. And Hood had been replaced by Admiral Hughes, who was not nearly as capable of a commander, not nearly as proactive. And so Nelson has less of a problem defying him. So he says, hey, these are the laws and I'm going to enforce them. And so he takes his ship and he starts seizing American ships that are trying to trade in the Caribbean. And this upsets everyone, even his girlfriend. Her name is Frances Nibbet. He would go on to later marry her shortly thereafter. And she's writing letters to him saying, hey, you're upsetting my family, all my friends back here. It's really unpopular what you're doing. Can you please just chill and stop enforcing these laws? And by the way, it's taking you away from me. So why don't you just relax, chill, and come see me? And I think Nelson's reply is very interesting. He says, had I taken your advice and not seized any American ships, I should now have been with you, but I should have neglected my duty, which I think your regard for me is too great for you to have wished me to do. Duty is the great business of a sea officer. All private considerations must give way to it, however painful it is. And that's a pretty good mission statement for Nelson's life. Duty was everything to him. It was his North Star. It was the great motivating force in his life. Well, eventually this commitment to duty and to enforcing these laws gets bigger than just the theater he's in. It gets back to London, to the government there, even to the king. And so there's a big controversy about it. And it actually works out for Nelson. The government in London was interested in enforcing these navigation acts more strictly. And it turned out that Nelson had just been ahead of the curve with where things were headed. And so his enforcement of the navigation acts in the Caribbean, while very controversial at the time, ends up being a big boon to his career. It makes him popular with the, the government, the prime minister, the head of the naval board, as well as with the king, who this eventually gets his way all, all the way up to the king of England, who is also making these decisions about, yes, we want these laws enforced. Now, the funny thing about it, though, is it ends up turning out all right, right? It ends up to his benefit. But they end up basically giving an award to Hughes, to the admiral of the area, because he was the one in charge, even though he was the one who didn't want to enforce the laws. And so Nelson writes back to London and he says, I feel much hurt that another should be thanked for what I did against his orders. I either deserve to be sent out of the service or at least have had some little notice taken of me. And so here you can see Nelson believes he needs to do a, a good job. Yes, that's the first thing. But he also believes in marketing and promotion a little bit. And if he feels like he's not getting the credit, he's going to make it known and try and make sure that he does the credit. That's going to be a, another hallmark of his career. So he's gobsmacked that Hughes is getting credit where he thought he should. Well, luckily for him, Hughes shortly thereafter goes away and Nelson gets put in temporary charge of the Caribbean, of the whole Caribbean Navy. And that's where things start to go wrong for him. This ship shows up and it is captained by Prince William Henry. So he's the son of the king, and he's kind of a screw-up, a ne'er-do-well. And so the king is looking at his son, and he's like, man, this kid needs help. What do I do for him? Maybe some service in the Navy will help him shape up, give him a little responsibility. So because he's a prince, you, know, you can't start him at the bottom rung of the Navy, so he gives him command of a ship. But to help him out, since he's never sailed before, he's given a lieutenant who is a very experienced captain, should be a captain, right? He's only demoted to lieutenant in order to kind of shepherd this prince and show him what to do. Well, the two immediately start falling out. The young prince is headstrong and ignorant, which is not a good combination. And he's a bad commander and constantly frustrated when his lieutenant is trying to correct him and do things the right way. And so they're sent on assignment to the Caribbean and on the way from England to Jamaica, 
They're just fighting the whole time, the prince and this lieutenant, who's essentially supposed to be his babysitter. And they show up, and Nelson is immediately smitten with Prince William. The number one value in his life is duty. So you can guess how he feels about royalty. He's a God, king, and country type of guy. So, you know, he's starstruck by Prince William. And he has this borderline sycophantic attachment to the prince and takes his side, even though he's clearly wrong in this dispute with his lieutenant. And so this dispute, like, spirals way out of control, becomes a national incident. And Nelson thinks, okay, you can never go wrong by siding with royalty, right? Because the king is the ultimate authority. Well, it turns out the king is not happy with him about this at all because the king sent his son into the Navy in order to shape up, in order to learn some things. And so he doesn't want people to side with him and let him get his way. He wants people to reform him, to instruct him, to straighten him out. And Nelson is ruining that by enabling him. And so it turns into a fiasco. He has some other problems at the same time. I think Nelson was feeling himself a little bit at this time. He's had some successes. He's a hot shot. He's a young star. And so he gets headstrong. One of the other things he does at this time is he decides that, you know, I'm the supreme naval commander here in the Caribbean right now, temporarily. And so I don't have to listen to anybody. And so there's this big dispute when they're at the harbor. Who's in charge? Is it the governor of Jamaica or is it him as a naval commander? And he takes this hardline stance. No, it's me. It's not, it's not the governor. And again, he's probably in the wrong here. And so this upsets the government back in London. It upsets the king. He's ticking off all the wrong people. So eventually when his commission runs out and he's decommissioned, because again, these are peacetime conditions, right? So uh, there's not that much need for that many ships. He was lucky to have a peacetime captaincy to begin with. And so he doesn't get renewed. He doesn't get a ship. And he tries really hard. He goes around London. He's talking with the naval board. He's talking with all of his allies, with everyone who knew his uncle Suckling, who has died by now. And he's he's saying, come on, there's got to be a ship that I can captain somewhere. But, you know, eventually Hood, who had been his mentor, tells him in very certain terms, listen, Nelson, the king doesn't like you. No one likes you. Like, you're damaged goods. You're not getting a ship. And, and so he doesn't. And for five years, he hangs around in England as a gentleman on half pay. Great Britain had come up with a system that, look, we need to greatly expand our Navy in times of war but we can't afford to employ everyone while we're not at war. So how do we make sure that there are enough naval officers around for when we do go to war without just employing them, paying them all this money? And so they come up with a policy that, hey, if you're a naval captain during peacetime, if we can't get you a ship, we'll give you half pay. And so for five years, he's just on half pay and he's just a country gentleman. He moves around to a few different houses with his wife, Frances. He, he married her when he was in the Caribbean. She, she was from one of those islands and eventually ends up back in his little town of Burnham Thorpe. And for someone who you know hated inactivity, it's hard to imagine a worse existence. I think he must have felt like he was in hell. And his writings from the time suggest that he did think that. I mean, he, he, he couldn't stand it. Um, it, it. This wasn't helped by the fact that his relationship with his wife was not as good as he had hoped. Uh, whenever he writes to her, he's always writing about affection, affectionately yours, my great affection for you. Thank you for your affectionate letter. Okay, I think it's a good description for the relationship at this point. It's not hostile, but it's not loving either. It's affectionate. 
right? So Nelson is bored to tears, constantly agitating for a ship and not getting one. He's spending time on land, living in a little home back in Burnham Thorpe with his wife, who he doesn't love that much, isn't that crazy about. And then he finally gets a gift. And that is the French Revolution. When it happens, everyone can tell that this is going to change everything in Europe. With pandemonium running riot through France, one thing was certain, war was soon to follow, and with it, more opportunities for young captains like Nelson. And so we'll hear all about it after this quick break. Hey guys, I'm just taking a quick break to tell you about the Founders Podcast. If you are an entrepreneur, if you are a founder of a company yourself or a founder in any capacity, and you're not already listening to the Founders Podcast, I really don't know why. It's popular and it's popular for a reason. David, the host of the show, has read 309 biographies so far of founders and has distilled the best insights from each of them. It's a lot like my show, but more focused on entrepreneurship. And it's really great. David does a fantastic job. I can't recommend it highly enough. He has an incredible memory and he's really good at drawing parallels between founders and teasing out common strategies and insights that are related between different founders. I would actually recommend starting with the episode that he just put out on Arnold Schwarzenegger. It is one of my favorite podcast episodes of the year. Maybe one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time. It's so good. It got me feeling so motivated. I really, I'm sincere about this. This isn't just an ad. Uh, I would say start there. Start with the most recent episode, episode 309, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and work your way backwards. You can thank me later. Go listen to Founders wherever you get your podcasts. War with France meant opportunity for Horatio Nelson. He's a capable sea captain and it's all hands on deck. He's given a ship and sent off to the Mediterranean. The Admiral, Lord Hood, had just managed to blockade and then take the city of Toulon in southern France. Nelson is in a smaller, faster ship, and so he's sent all over the Mediterranean, taking messages, making raids, protecting British ships, attacking French ones. And this was part of his strategy, by the way. He had been offered a larger ship they'd have to wait just a little bit longer for, and it was generally considered more prestigious to be in a bigger ship with more guns. But Nelson liked his smaller ships. Why? Because if you were in a big ship, what was called a ship of the line, you were generally too slow to carry around missions on your own. So your role was to stay with the main fleet and wait for a big battle, a big engagement, where you would form just one ship in a line of ships and you would carry out your admiral's battle orders. A smaller ship gave Nelson much more independence and freedom to distinguish himself. So maybe that's something to consider. It can be tempting to take the biggest role, but if you're talented, you might be able to distinguish yourself more in a slightly lower role, but one where you are actually responsible for results and genuinely in charge. So Nelson is going around the Mediterranean. He's running all these missions. What was really important to him was to understand the bigger context of what was going on. So the international diplomatic context, the political context, all that. So at one point, He's in Naples. He's negotiating with the government there and their allies, Britons. And he says, you know, I see that you guys have some unused troops around here. We could really use more men in Toulon. So he gets the king's approval, the king of Naples, and he sends these 2000 men to Toulon. What he didn't know was that Admiral Hood, who's in Toulon, had actually recognized the need and had sent the request for more troops to Naples. Nelson had read his mind. The troops arrived in Toulon before Hood's message even reached Nelson. So it shows how that broader understanding allows him to be helpful, allows him to be proactive, and allows him to impress his commander above him. 
Now, the British were firmly in control of Toulon. Things were going great when suddenly, out of nowhere, the siege turned against them. A series of artillery maneuvers and direct assaults put them on their back foot. And then before they knew it, the French had retaken Toulon. This was shocking. And perhaps Nelson inquired about how this happened. And maybe when he did, he heard about an energetic young artillery officer who had turned the tide of the battle, a Corsican, as it turned out, named Napoleone Buonaparte. Well, with Toulon lost, the British needed a new place to station their Mediterranean fleet, and so they turned to Corsica. Corsica was under French control, so Hood put Nelson in charge of capturing it. And here, once again, we see Nelson at his best. He's conducting these sieges. He's very energetic. He's not only putting the ships in position, but he actually goes with the army and helps them figure out how to coordinate the siege on land as well as helping them position cannons. It's actually while he's doing this at one of these sieges that a cannon from one of the forts at a city called Calvi hits a rock next to him and it shoots stones uh, up into his face and the shards hit him in the right eye and blind his right eye. His sight never fully recovered. He said from that time, his right eye could only distinguish light from dark, but no objects. And by the way, this injury being blinded in his right eye didn't deter him. Oddly, it even seemed to stimulate him. He wrote to his wife, Fanny, at this time, a brave man dies but once, a coward all his life long. We cannot escape death, and should it happen, recollect that it is the will of him in whose hands are the issue of life and death. My health, it was never better, seldom so well. And that's a theme that you see throughout Nelson's career. He puts himself in harm's way repeatedly with no regard for his own life. He left it in God's hands. In fact, he goes further. In another letter, he says, Life with disgrace is dreadful. A glorious death is to be envied. And if anything happens to me, recollect that death is a debt we must all pay. And whether now or in a few years hence can be but of little consequence. So maybe even more than indifference towards death, he craved it a little bit. A glorious death is to be envied, he said. And that tells you a lot about who he was and his state of mind. Well, around this time, the admiral is replaced, Admiral Hood, who had been a very good admiral, but he gets replaced with this guy named Jervis. And Admiral Jervis was a hard disciplinarian known for keeping strict order. He's not for everyone. Undisciplined officers quickly made their way out of his fleet. But for those who could stand up to his scrutiny, capable people like Nelson, they loved serving under him because he kept things nice and tight and in order. And for those captains that he thought had promise, he tutors them, he protects them, he nurtures them, and he gives them opportunities for action. This is one of the primary things he's known for. The first Lord of the Admiralty, the guy in charge of the entire Navy, writes to Jervis and says, you have established so good a school for young officers that if a lad had anything in him, it must come out. So this Jervis guy comes into the Mediterranean fleet and he's like the Mr. Miyagi of the British Navy. He's the master splinter. He's nurturing up all this young talent, including Nelson. One of the things about Jervis in regards to Nelson is it says in one biography that Jervis could not resist sending Nelson's reports to Spencer. That's the first Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Spencer. Few men were so capable with either the sword or the pen and none with both. Okay, so that's another commonality between great leaders. They know how to write. They know how to communicate. Remember, Caesar was the greatest writer of his age. His commentaries on the Gallic Wars were bestsellers. Steve Jobs, of course, was going to be a novelist if he didn't go into technology. And I don't need to tell you what an effective communicator he was on the stage. So whatever domain you're in, great leaders really know how to write. And that was true of Nelson. He was a great writer. And these dispatches, these reports that he wrote were so compelling and engaging that his senior officer 
couldn't help but send them on to London and be like, yeah, check out all the stuff that's happening. So after these sieges on Corsica, Nelson next had the mission of reinforcing the Austrians in Italy. And that's because Napoleon, after having taken Toulon, was put in charge of the army of Italy. And he's attacking there. And so the British thought that they could help stop him from the sea. The Austrians are the one fighting him, but you know they think they can send some ships and they can bring supplies to the Austrians and they can cut off supplies to Napoleon so they can't be reinforced by ships on the sea. And they conduct small raids wherever possible. And so that is Nelson's goal, is to disrupt Napoleon from the sea. But this was Napoleon's first famous march through Italy, and there was no stopping him. Ally after ally fell to the French. Piedmont, Tuscany, Genoa, he's just marching his way through Italy, unstoppable. It's really interesting. Nelson comments as this is happening. He says, the French fight on shore like our seamen. They never stop and know not the word halt. And it's true. The French army was very much like the British Navy. And Nelson was the mirror image of Napoleon. Both were incredibly aggressive. Both were relentless, as he just alluded to. And both were known for their speed. And that wasn't just in war. Nelson and Napoleon were known for doing everything fast. One officer wrote about Nelson. His movements were rapid. He was quick and active in everything he either said or did. So like Napoleon, he moves fast, he marches fast, he walks fast, he eats fast, he talks fast. He was obsessed with speed. So they're very well matched. But in this case, Nelson was unable to stop Napoleon. With Italy completely falling to the French, it became clear that the British would no longer be able to hold a base in the Mediterranean. Nelson was put in charge of evacuating Corsica, which he had just so recently conquered. Nelson did what he always did and evacuated efficiently, effectively, and quickly. After getting British forces out, he was sent to retrieve the last remaining British outpost on the small island of Elba. As it turned out, the army commander there didn't have direct orders from the army to retreat, and so he refused to go. So whatever, Nelson has to take whoever will leave and goes back to the nearest remaining British base, which is in Gibraltar, right at the southern tip of Spain. On his way back, he has to sneak through the Spanish fleet, which is deployed right there at the southern tip of Spain. And when he gets back, he finds that the British fleet with Jervis at its head, is preparing for battle. And so Nelson quickly joins his ship to the fleet that's about to attack. He didn't know it yet, but this would be the first great battle of Nelson's career. Admiral Jervis only had 15 large ships, called ships of the line, compared to the Spanish, who had 27. So the British were heavily outnumbered, almost two to one. But the British were better sailors, they were more organized, and because of their superior training, their ships could fire almost twice as quickly as Spanish ships could. They were just that much faster at clearing their cannons, reloading, and firing again. So Jervis believed that he could be victorious despite the difference in numbers. And because his fleet is so much smaller, he surprises the Spanish when he attacks. He caught them totally off guard. They were clumped together in two groups and had not formed a battle line. And especially if you're defending in a sea battle, you really want to be in a line most of the time. At least that was the traditional way to fight battles. So the Spanish are clumped into two groups. They have a larger group and a smaller group. The British, by contrast, under Jervis's disciplined leadership, were in like the tightest, most perfect battle line ever formed. They're practically lined up nose to toe in a single line. And Jervis sails that tight line right between the two Spanish fleets and cuts them off from each other and stops them from joining up and fighting together and allowing them to better utilize their superior numbers. 
So I'm going to try and take you through what happens. You have to imagine an overhead map of the battle. Okay. So imagine at the top of the map, you've got this large clump of Spanish ships, like 18 Spanish ships, something like that. And then on the bottom, you've got a smaller clump. You got like 10 Spanish ships. And the British come charging in with their 15 ships from right to left. And so they, they cut right in between these two groups and then they turn up towards the larger cluster of Spanish ships. So Nelson is kind of at the rear of this line. He's close to the rear. He's three from the back, essentially. And he realizes as they're going that this great British line has gone a little too far and a little too fast. And so they've, they're almost shooting past the Spanish fleet. And so that's leaving an opening um, for the big group and the little group to meet up. So if the British line is going from right to left, then the two Spanish clumps can move from left to right to go where the British just were and meet up over there. And they start to move in that direction. And so Nelson sees, oh my gosh, these two groups of Spanish ships are about to meet up. This is bad. So he's in the line, he sees the problem and he says, okay, we're acting. So he disobeys the order to stay in line, peels off, opens up full sail and screams around in this wide arc and cuts off the Spanish from regrouping. Now remember, he doesn't have a very large ship, right? He preferred these kind of smaller ships. And he has just sailed right up to the larger clump of the Spanish fleet with one ship and single-handedly starts shooting at them, starts engaging them. It was an extremely daring move. And for a while, his ship did take a pounding. I mean, they were getting shot at by three or four different Spanish ships, all of which were bigger than his. But soon, the rest of the British fleet joins him and Nelson is fighting at, at better odds. He ends up next to a Spanish ship called the San Nicolas, right next to it, which at this point is nearly battered into submission. And so Nelson personally picks up his sword and leads a boarding party to capture this ship. And as he is, you know, jumping over decks and capturing the San Nicolas, another large Spanish ship, which had been fighting other British ships and had, um, you know, taken some damage. So it kind of drifts away and it gets tangled with the San Nicolas. So this other ship is called the San Joseph. And so Nelson leads his boarding party from the one Spanish ship onto the other. And in a short time, he boards and captures two Spanish ships, both of which were larger than his own. In less than five hours, the battle is won and the British inflict huge losses on the Spanish. Nelson is a hero. This has been the moment he had been waiting for and he passed the test with style. Jervis, though a drill master and disciplinarian, wasn't upset about Nelson's heroics and saw the wisdom in them. But Nelson had a problem and that was Jervis was a no-nonsense guy. He wasn't one to hype up Nelson's victory himself. And even worse, Jervis's main lieutenant on his ship the one who was responsible for making the report of the battle hated Nelson. They had a big rivalry and Nelson was not about to trust the reporting of his great moment, his great triumph to this enemy, this guy who hated him. So he finds out which ship is tasked with carrying the news back to England. And he goes and pays it a visit. He finds one of the officers on board who he knows and who was known for being a literary man, a good writer. And Nelson gives him his version of events, highlighting 
his heroic maneuver, peeling off from the line, cutting off the Spanish, therefore, you know, stopping them from joining up their, their two squadrons. And then the boarding of the one ship and boarding the other. And then also when he took these two ships, the Spanish captains gave them his swords. That's kind of what you do when you surrender your ship. And so he gives this man, this writer, who's going to go back to London, the gold sword that was given to him from the captain of the San Nicholas and says, Hey, why don't you go take this to parliament and show it to them and tell them what happened here? They'll love it. So this guy goes to London, takes the gold sword to parliament, tells them the story of what happens and people go nuts for it with Britain getting their butts kicked by Napoleon in Italy. The British public was desperate for some good news. And this naval victory seemed like a godsend. And there was only one hero of it in their eyes once they had heard this story. And that is Horatio Nelson. And by the way, it was good that Nelson did this because the official report delivered by Jervis's number two, it didn't even mention Nelson. All the other officers recognized him as the hero of the battle, but this report, the official report did not mention his name. And so yes, he won the battle. He still would have looked great in the eyes of Lord Hood, but you know, this battle is what launched his career. It's called the battle of the Cape St. Vincent. This is what made him a star in England and really allowed him to rise to the top very quickly. And it happened because he took the marketing into his own hands. You know, everyone has to pay attention to marketing. I know sometimes people feel like, well, if my product is good enough, my engineering is good enough. If my skills are good enough, I don't have to worry about marketing. That's not true. You always have to think about getting the word out and the really great leaders are not only great achievers, but they're also great marketers. They're great salespeople. They're great at getting the word out. And he truly was a celebrity. His father wrote to him a couple weeks later to tell him that, you know, he'd been out and about when the news came about this victory. And uh, eventually his father was getting swarmed and mobbed by so many people wanting to shake his hand and wish him well, they had to retire back to his house because um, he couldn't go anywhere because so many people wanted to see him. So as I mentioned, this is a turning point. Before, he had been talented and recognized as such, yes, but he was just one of many junior officers who were making a name for themselves, but now he was the star of the show. So it looks like he's just poised for success, but once again, he followed up success with disaster. With the Spanish fleet knocked out for the moment, it seemed like a good opportunity to strike and steal some treasure. A raid was planned for the island of Tenerife, where it was believed that the Spanish had a large amount of treasure stored. So Nelson is to lead this raid. And it's not of big strategic importance. This is literally like smash and grab job. It's like kind of like a heist. Like, let's go to Tenerife. We're pretty sure they've got this big, I think it was a silver shipment from the Americas. Let's go see if we can raid it and grab it. But once again, Nelson was overconfident as he had been when he tried to storm the island of Turks uh, back in the Caribbean. The first attempt at an attack was done in the middle of the night and they put their landing boats too far from shore. And so, and that's because they can't see, it's the middle of the night, but they're rowing and rowing towards shore and uh, they never make it. Daylight comes before they can make it to shore. They're spotted, so they lose the element of surprise, so they have to row back out to the ships. At this point, Nelson probably should have abandoned the mission, but he tried two more attacks. You know, the second gets a little further, they actually make it to land, but it also fails. And so the third attack, Nelson leads personally. Once again, they try for a night attack for the element of surprise. Once again, they are spotted. This time it's not because they wait till morning, but there's just a Spanish guard now they're looking for them. So they're spotted and they get shot at, snipers are, are shooting at them. 
And right as he lands on shore, Nelson is hit in the arm and blood immediately starts gushing from the wound. A major artery had been severed. His quick thinking stepson named Josiah Nisbet tourniqueted his arm, which probably saved his life. And Nelson quickly returned to his ships. The attack failed shortly thereafter. As Nelson boarded the ship, they lowered a chair for him so they didn't have to try and climb up into his ship. But he said, and this is a quote, let me alone. I have yet legs left and one arm. Tell the surgeon to make haste and get his instruments. I know I must lose my right arm and the sooner it is off, the better. And he was right. The surgeon quickly amputated his right arm. Nelson was medicated with opium, but even so, he was impressively stoic about his injury. Within a half hour, he returned to take command of his ship against the suggestions of his doctor. And that very night, he wrote for the first time with his left hand and wrote out a report back to the Navy of what had happened on the failed attack. Now, he was very stoic. He was very brave, you know, basically doesn't grieve at all, doesn't show any emotion, just says, all right, my right arm is gone, moving on. But of course, behind that stiff upper lip, it was hiding some feelings of grief and depression. He wrote to Jervis, and here's where you can see a little bit of his despair. He said, a left-handed admiral will never again be considered as useful. Therefore, the sooner I get to a very humble cottage, the better, and make room for a better man to serve the state. So you see, there's a little like, woe is me uh, element to that statement to, to his admiral. But luckily for him, Jervis did not agree. Nelson was sent home to England to convalesce only for a few months because one armed or not, Jervis knew that Nelson was the most talented captain he had. And so he wanted him right back in action. His arm was amputated on August 13th, 1797. By March 28th of the next year, he was setting sail for the Mediterranean to rejoin Jervis. Nelson was needed because Napoleon was plotting something. He was gathering a vast amount of ships, transports, and men at Toulon. He was planning an invasion, but no one knew exactly where. People thought he might be getting ready to invade Ireland, maybe Portugal, Sicily, Constantinople, or even Egypt. Jervis sent Nelson into the Mediterranean with a straightforward mission. Track down this French force, destroy their navy, and stop whatever invasion they had planned. And this is a harder mission than it seemed. The Mediterranean is a big place, especially when you don't know if the people you're looking for are going northeast, southwest. I mean, they could be leaving the Mediterranean and going up to Ireland. Uh, they could be going to, to Portugal on the far western side, or they could be going to Constantinople on the far eastern side. They could be going to the Dalmatian coast in the north or to Egypt in the south. They have no idea where to start looking for these people. But Jervis figures, if anyone can figure it out, Nelson can. And Jervis does something else very interesting. Usually you would expect Nelson to lead this mission and for him to send his other top captains to be doing other similarly important tasks, other similarly important missions. But no, Jervis organized them into something resembling a special forces unit. All of Britain's best young hotshot captains would be serving under Nelson. Their force wasn't particularly big. It was just, I think, 12 or 13 ships, but it was almost unbelievably talented. So as the French forces in Toulon slipped out into the Mediterranean and went to invade who knows where, Nelson and this talented crew began their search. They zigzagged all over, seemingly just missing them at every turn. Finally, they got word that the French were at Malta. They raced there, but found that they had missed them by more than a week. And now Nelson was convinced, because they'd gone to Malta, that the French were headed for Egypt. 
And so he dashed off to Egypt as quickly as he could. When he got to the port of Alexandria, he was panicked to find that the French were not there. Napoleon, he thought, must have hoodwinked him. And he's devastated, you know. Even now, the French might be headed for Sicily or Portugal with no British Navy to stop them. And so Nelson is panicking. There were really high expectations back in England that he would be able to pull this off. And it looks like he's disappointing everyone. So Nelson races back to Italy. And it was only there that he learned the truth. The French had been headed for Egypt, but in his rush to pursue them, Nelson had actually leapfrogged them. He'd gone around them essentially and arrived just a day earlier than the French had. So discovering this, he headed back to Alexandria, undoubtedly the port where they must have landed. He knew it was too late to stop the landing, but maybe by some miracle, he hoped the fleet was still there. On August 1st, 1798, as his fleet pulled up to Alexandria, he sent two scouts a few miles away to Aboukir Bay. There they discovered the full French fleet. They signaled back to Nelson that the fleet had been found. Nelson later wrote, the signal sighting the French fleet was reported. All sprang from their seats and only staying to drink a bumper to our success. We were in a moment upon deck. It was already 2.30 in the afternoon. It would take another couple hours just to move his fleet into position. Most men would have waited blockaded the port and waited until the next day to fight. In fact, that's what the French prepared for, thinking there was no way he would attack this late in the evening. But not Nelson. He decided to attack now. He brought the captains on board his ship for a quick conference. This was going to have to be a very spontaneous and flexible attack with no time for detailed planning against a set opponent in a set defensive formation. And yet Nelson felt no hesitation in ordering the attack. That is because for most of their last few months, as his fleet had cruised around the Mediterranean looking for the French, Nelson had frequently met with his captains. He brought them on board whenever he could. Realizing that they were young, intelligent, capable, and ambitious, he decided that he wasn't even going to try ordering them around and telling them what to do. Instead, he took a highly collaborative and communicative approach. He brought them onto his ship and he told them his thinking, asked them their ideas, talked through potential scenarios, and discussed how they might react to different situations. The result was that these 11 captains were of one mind by the end of the journey. They knew Nelson's thoughts, and he knew theirs. They all had the same ideas about strategy, tactics, and how they were going to attack when they found this French fleet. In the entirety of the Battle of the Nile, Nelson would only issue nine orders to his fleet. He trusted his captains to follow the general outline of the battle while adapting to circumstances as they saw fit. And that's exactly what they did. The French were lined up at the entrance to Aboukir Bay, with their cannons facing outwards towards the sea. Nelson's plan was simply to swing around, come in close, and engage with the top of the French line at point-blank range. The wind was against the French fleet, and they were anchored, so the bottom half of the French line wouldn't be able to sail up and join their compatriots who were under attack. The English generally preferred close combat where their superior rate of fire could do the most damage. But Nelson took this to a never before seen extreme. He was a proponent of a new type of cannon called a carronade. It had a shorter barrel and was useless for medium or even long distance. And you know, the admiralty, the, the old school people, they didn't like carronades. It's this newfangled contraption. This isn't how a cannon is supposed to look and work. 
and you know they pointed this out it doesn't even work at medium range if if your opponent is any distance away this thing is useless but at very short ranges it would rip through the enemy's ship and leave this big jagged scar right through the middle of it and nelson certainly was not the inventor of the carronade he wasn't the first person to use it but he was the biggest champion of it the most prolific user of the carronade so for this reason among others he preferred to get right up close to the enemy so this is a pretty simple plan get really close to the enemy go ship to ship and then stop halfway down the line so that we can fight half of the french fleet first and save the other half for later and so they sail for the french fleet with this plan in mind so let me break this down again think of a map so on the left side of the map you've got a bay right so like kind of a half moon think of it and so uh, you can think of it as the french are lined up all along the half moon so there should be no way to get in but as the lead ship the goliath began to swing around its captain thomas foley noticed an opportunity the french had left too large of a gap between the top of their line and the shore at least that's what he thought he guessed that he might be able to shoot the gap and sail between the top of the french line and engage them from the bay side rather than the seaside well thomas foley looks at it and says i think i can make it and not only that he knows if he can he is guessing the french have probably only loaded up the side of their ships that's facing towards the seaside they're completely undefended they don't have their cannons ready to go on the bay side because they're not going to be shooting into the bay why there's no one there there are no enemies there and so they're completely undefended captain foley trusted his instincts and the goliath shot the gap the rest of the fleet watched as they sailed past the top of the french line and into the bay they had made it without running aground the next four captains followed him spontaneously again this is not in the battle plans but they see this and they go okay here we go so the next four follow him into the bay the sixth ship was nelson nelson then broke off the line and followed the original plan and lined up against the french on the seaside so now you've essentially got a triple line you have the french fleet and then you have british ships on either side of them the french were surrounded at about 6 30 p.m on august 1st as nelson's fleet came into position on either side of the french fleet they unleashed hell by 7 p.m french ships began to surrender Nevertheless, the remaining friendships did put up really stiff resistance, often even in the face of certain defeat. And they were doing it for honor, right? This is how seamen were supposed to act. We're going down with a fight. We're not just going to let the British waltz in here and, and do this the easy way. Of particular difficulty was Le Orient, the French flagship. It was a massive 120-gun behemoth whose hull was nearly impenetrable. Multiple English ships were engaging it, but it wasn't going down. Finally, it caught fire and began to burn. Even while burning, the crew of L'Orient continued to fight. In the middle of this fighting, as L'Orient is starting to catch fire, Nelson was struck by a piece of shrapnel that hit him in the head. Blood streamed down his face, and a half inch of his skull was actually exposed. He went to the doctor who stitched him up, and as he climbed back out onto the quarterdeck, the magazine, the ammunition storage of L'Orient, caught fire and exploded. 
hundreds of lives were lost immediately. And it must have been very demoralizing to the French to see this, their one impenetrable ship. Even so, the remaining French ships continued to fight well into the night. The fighting began to peter out around midnight and finally stopped completely at 2.30 a.m. because it was just too dark to go on. Exhausted, men slept on cannons and quarterdecks. Wherever they found themselves, they just laid down or leaned over and passed out. But the sun rose early the next day, and fighting resumed only an hour and a half later at about 4 a.m. And this time it didn't go on long. One more ship surrendered, and two fled the scene. They were eventually chased down a day later and surrendered. The French fleet in the Mediterranean was completely destroyed. Nelson, by contrast, hadn't lost a single ship. Napoleon was trapped in Egypt, and any victories he won in the Middle East would be meaningless as he had no way to reinforce and follow up on them. Horatio Nelson had etched his name into the annals of history as one of the great seamen of all time. And yet, even despite that, the best was yet to come. His greatest victory still lay ahead. And that is where we will go with episode two. But before we do, let's talk to end this episode about what lessons we can learn from the first half of Horatio Nelson's life. The first is something that I pulled from the end, and that is combine your best talent. Ambitious people like being around other ambitious people. And so, you know, this super team, this special forces unit that Jervis puts together and put Nelson at the head of, it was really effective, right? I remember early in my career when I worked in consulting, I did a consulting project for a company that did door-to-door sales. And so we were talking to them and they told us about an experience that they had where previously their strategy had been to take their top salespeople and spread them out throughout the country, which is what you'd expect. So this is here in the States. So if you had, you know, your five top salespeople, one would go be the leader of the West division and another would be the leader of the Midwest and the East and the South and the Southwest, whatever. They split them up regionally. And one year they tried this experiment where they took all of their top performers and instead of making them division heads, they put them together as just regular door-to-door salesmen and put them together in a, a single area. And what they found was that sales increased very significantly when they tried that. Because the truth was, there's only so much that one person can do, even as a leader, I guess. And so the sales in the regions didn't decrease that much, but there was a compounding effect to putting together these great salespeople. So of course, their five high-performing salespeople, you would expect the area where they were all together to perform really well, but performed even better than expectations. Somehow there were synergistic effects because they could help each other, right? So when you have high performers, you know, helping and giving advice to other high performers, anytime you have a 1% increase, they're increasing a higher baseline. And, and so the growth is, is greater. Like I said, synergistic. This isn't something you can always do, but I think it's something people should consider more often, which is this idea of not spreading out your top performers, but trying to clump them together, at least for periods of time, so that they can learn from and improve one another. Another big theme from Nelson's life was knowing the full context and the goals of what you're trying to achieve. So even though he was all about duty, he wasn't about blind obedience. He wasn't just about following orders. Right? He wanted to know why he was doing what he was doing so that he could do it most effectively. And I think that's really important. Some people want to block out the bigger context and just focus on their job. But if you want to be a great leader, that's not an option. 
One other takeaway is have a code. Be able to say what you stand for. For Nelson, that was duty. Talked all the time about duty. And he repeated it over and over. I'm, I'm going to do my duty. I have to do my duty. Duty first. For Jeff Bezos, that is customer centricity. He says he we want to be the most customer-centric company on the planet. He repeats it over and over again. And focusing on that customer is for Jeff Bezos what duty was for Horatio Nelson. And finding that code, that purpose, that focus, that obsession gives you a lot of clarity and improves your performance. So find that code, what that is for you. Next, create an environment where risk is not only tolerated, but rewarded. This isn't actually from Nelson necessarily, but more from his commander, Jervis. When Nelson took a huge gamble and it paid off at Cape St. Vincent, he praised him, let him get the credit, and allowed the accomplishment to be publicized. When he took a big risk at Tenerife and it went horribly wrong and Nelson got people killed and he got his arm shot off, guess what Jervis did? He immediately wrote to London, to the Naval Board, and took full responsibility. He covered for Nelson. He didn't say that this was Nelson's fault at all. He said, my call, bad call, I sent Nelson. It was a failure. Sorry, my bad. Full stop, my bad. And that is how you incentivize people to take risks and be aggressive. Because now if you're Nelson, you know, okay, if I take a risk, if it pays off, I'm going to get the credit. And if it doesn't pay off, then I have people who are willing to protect me. And so that aggressive mindset is a part of what made the British Navy so great. One of the defining moments of the British Navy, there's this admiral, this guy named John Bing. And he was an upper class aristocrat and an admiral. And at one battle, he was too cautious. He had the upper hand on the Spanish. This is, you know, well before Nelson, but decided not to follow up and engage and finish the job. He, he just let them escape. And he was court-martialed and he was executed. He was killed by firing squad. And so from then on, the word was out in the British Navy, a risk that doesn't work out is okay. But inaction is the ultimate sin. You might literally be killed for it. So aggressiveness, assertiveness, and risk-taking were highly encouraged. And that action is what made the British Navy of the 19th century one of the most effective organizations the world has ever seen, ever. Of course, Horatio Nelson was unique in that regard. Even within the context of the British Navy, he was one of the most aggressive and daring captains uh, ever to have lived. But it's not an accident that he came around in a culture that encouraged men like him. Okay, those are just a few takeaways. That does it for this episode. Tune in next time to hear the exciting conclusion of the life of Horatio Nelson. Until then, thanks for listening to How to Take Over the World. Hi, are you still listening? Thanks for sticking around. By the way, I just want to mention one more thing. I have a new website, takeoverpod.com. I'm going to be sending a weekly newsletter. So if you'd like to get that, I'll have even more insights from some of these episodes, some of the stuff that didn't make it into the audio. So go to takeoverpod.com and drop your email to get even more how to take over the world in your life.